The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. On today's episode, Trident Room host Sydney Merkin sits down with Lieutenant Colonel Chris Della. Hello, Trident Room Podcast. This is your host, Sydney Merkins. Today we have a very special guest on. We have the International Affairs Program Manager, Lieutenant Colonel Chris Dello. We're going to be doing a follow-up from our last episode with the program advisor, Ronal Morales. Lieutenant Colonel Dello, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Sydney. Happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell our guests a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I came into the Marine Corps as an infantry officer, and I started out as a platoon commander at 2nd Battalion, 6 Marines. Uh, I then went to a small craft company, which is now defunct, but uh, working riverine issues primarily in South America, but then we actually did deploy and take the boats to Iraq. Uh, from there, I went down and worked uh, counter-narcotics uh, for JADF South for a couple of years. And then I was a company commander at 1-3, uh, and then I was selected for the FAO program from there. Uh, so that's kind of when my FAO life started, and I went to, of course, NPS and DLI for French, and then went over to Morocco for Norwegian training. And from there, uh, I came back to uh, be an OPSO for the 22nd U, and then uh, from there, went to Kayakal, which is also now defunct, the Center for Advanced Operational Culture and Language. Um, uh, and that was kind of, what, that was my, my payback tour for being a foreign area officer. And I really didn't, that, that's kind of where I decided, hey, I, I want to do this, but I think we need to change a few things. So um, I guess we can get it more into that later. But uh, from there, I, I was selected to be the exchange officer in Argentina. Um, and I got sent out to Argentina for two years and then came up here and I came and took over this job in the summer of 2019. So I've been here for three and a half years. Awesome. It sounds like you spent maybe most of your or half of your career, at least overseas, doing FAO type things. I've, yeah, about half doing FAO type things, definitely. Okay. Uh, working between joint and um, international billets. So yeah, about half. Okay, awesome. I know last time we talked to Ronell about all things FAO. Today we're kind of talking about new initiatives in the FAO pipeline and, you know, RAOs and FASAs potentially as well. Sounds like you're the perfect person with all the experience to talk about those things. So within the past few years, the Marine Corps has published a few new documents, Stand-in Forces, Force Design 2030, Talent Management 2030. So I was really just hoping to talk to you about all of that today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things that all of those documents have um, in common, and even if you, you know, ratchet it up to national level documents, everybody right now is recognizing the importance of allies and partners. And we're also recognizing that our military uh, cannot cover the entire world, right? There, there's threats from all over the, the world. Uh, and threats maybe is the wrong word, um, but there's, there's competition space mm-hmm. all over the world. And so in order for us to be able to actively compete and, and to maintain uh, what we see as is, is, you know, the correct worldview, you have to have 
a close network of allies and partners. We have to be able to par partner with people that are willing and able to to help uh, you know to to help us to compete. So I think that that absolutely boils down to you know the Marine Corps needs to have a community that, uh, of foreign area officers, foreign area staff NCOs uh, that can be that. Um, strategic enabler for the service in order to you know, maintain and develop those partnerships with our you know, foreign counterparts, our allies and our partners. Yeah, absolutely. I know at MPS we have foreign exchange students, so I think everyone recognizes the importance of allies and partners. And from my understanding, the Marine Corps is the only branch of military that has yet to shift from the uh, dual track pipeline for FAIS to the single track pipeline. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think um, it's something that has been talked about in the Marine Corps FAO community, at least since I came in 12 years ago. Um, and the Marine Corps certainly has reasons for maintaining the dual, dual track. Uh, there's a lot of uh, senior leadership that believes that the ability to go back and forth to bring that FAO goodness back to your primary MOS and back into the fleet is, is a great thing. And while I don't disagree with that, what we, I think we're getting to the point now where senior leadership is starting to realize that there is benefit to that, but we're also leaving a ton of experience and um, specialty, specialization really, on the table. So we have been moving towards that direction. Um, again, I, we have a fair amount of support going up from you know the three and even and, and even four-star level, that something needs to change in the FAO program, that we need to do a better job of managing the talent that we have and getting people in the right place at the right time. Um, but it is a difficult, it's a difficult process to, mm -hmm. to navigate on how to make change. Uh, even in the Marine Corps right now, where making change is, is uh, something that seems to have the attention of everybody, but there's still a lot of bureaucracy and there's still a lot of uh, time that is required to do this stuff. So we're looking at it. Um, and I think, I think that we will probably have an answer, uh, either yes or no, in the next year. I'm hoping that it's yes. Um, but ultimately, it's a decision that uh, the senior leaders will make on what they think is best for the Marine Corps and what they, they think that they actually need out of foreign area officers. So, um, like I said, we're teeing that up, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping in the next year. Yeah. Absolutely. So there's definitely pros and cons between staying dual track or moving to the single track pipeline. Can you tell us what the difference between the two, you know, tracks are for those that don't know? Just explain how maybe the Navy and the Army do their single track versus the Marine Corps' dual track. Sure. So, I mean, it's as simple as it sounds. Uh, in the Army, uh, when you're selected to be a foreign area officer, that's what you're going to do for the rest of your career. There's different billets, different uh, career milestones that they have as they go up, but you are considered to be doing you know, fair work the entire time. Uh, the Navy is very similar. Their sessions are a little bit different than the way the Marine Corps and the Army do it. Uh, but ultimately, once they come over to the FAO community, again, they're considered a FAO, and that's what they're going to stay in for the rest of their career. For the Marine Corps, we treat it as a graduate education program, which you get selected as uh, between four and seven years is what we're supposed to be selecting officers to come, and they start their, their naval postgraduate school, their language school, and then one year of uh, in region training. 
in order to maintain competitiveness for promotion at that point after they kind of reached the height of their their FAO experience, their FAO training, I should say, we send them back to their primary MOS because we the last thing we want to have is somebody that tops out as a captain or, or a major. So they have to get back. They have to get their, uh, their relevant primary MOS experience. And then after that, they come back to us uh, for a FAO payback tour. Um, that causes all kinds of challenges from a program management perspective uh, because we don't have a a very, it's very difficult for us to forecast with any kind of certainty what billets are going to be available for the FAOs six years from when they're originally selected. So that, that's kind of the timeline. So just you know, to give a, a firm example, the Marines that were just selected on this year's Commandant's Education Board, we go through and we take 25 we take those 25 Marines, we look at what their background is, what regions they want to study, and then we try to rack them and stack them based on needs of the Marine Corps. Well, needs of the Marine Corps should ideally be what billets are going to be available when they are, you know, when they're coming due for, for doing their utilization tour. Um, however, since that's seven years from now, it's almost impossible for us to know which billets are actually going to be open. So that means we are going to, we, we have to operate under commander's intent and say, okay, we know that Indo-PACOM is the priority region, is the priority theater for the Marine Corps right now, so we're going to make 50% of the FAOs that we have selected, we're going to make them Indo-PACOM aligned, either 8243 or 8248. Uh, and then 25% is going to be going to UCOM, either 8242 or 8247. And then the remaining 25% are split between Africa, CENTCOM, and uh, and LATAM. And that just doesn't marry up well with the billets that are actually going to be available. So without geeking out too much, it, it creates a, a, a reliability issue when the MARFORs or the MEFs, whoever, when they're depending on getting these billets filled, and I can't fill them uh, because we're only creating, we we're creating so many Indo-PACOM aligned fails, and we're just barely able to meet that. It creates a, you know, there, there's a there's a reliability issue that they can't reliably get their fails, uh, and you know, to me that's that, that causes a huge programmatic problem. Absolutely, and more from more than just the administrative side, you know, when you have turnover in a region every few years, I imagine that causes friction, especially when we have this focus on partners and allies. And the new concept for stand-in forces, having Marines deploy all over the world at any time, it makes a lot of sense to have, you know, experts in that region that have developed relationships over years and years. So with that, what type of friction occurs when we have so much turnover in the regions? Well, I think the, one of the biggest things, and I'm not sure if, if I'm not addressing the question, uh, you know, pose it to me again, but I think one of the biggest issues that we have is that there is oftentimes not a very good understanding by the Marines uh, and prob probably other services as well, but you know, kind of the general purpose force on what our role is, you know, in the, in the greater um, U.S. strategic context. So when, when you know, as a, as a U.S. assistant OPSO, you know, the idea that we could just go into any country and set up camp and start doing things was kind of... Um, I, that, that was the that was the mindset of the senior leadership uh, that we could just go in and we could do this and we could um, do ISR or or you know have drones flying and all of this stuff. 
the requirement to coordinate that stuff with Department of State and other entities is something that a lot of times gets lost. And so with the, the stand-in forces, <clears throat> I think one of the, the, the trickiest things will, will be having somebody that understands what the Marine Corps is trying to do in support of national objectives, but also understands how to put that to the decision makers on the country team, the ambassador, the senior defense official, um, and to some, to some extent, maybe even the COCOM as well. But understanding how to take what the Marine Corps wants and needs done and getting that translated to the decision makers within the embassy, so the country team and the ambassador. And um, we have to do it in a way that we are not directing. We don't have the ability to direct the ambassador. Uh, we have to do it in a, in a spirit of cooperation, and we have to show value in what we're trying to do. And that's that's the thing that's important, you know, in my opinion, for having FAOs or at least some kind of uh, embassy team representation. Uh, how that looks, you know, standing forces uh, is a very difficult um, concept to realize, I think, in some ways. Uh, I absolutely think it's uh, it's the right thing to do, but when you talk about having that wide of a footprint operating autonomously across, you know, such a, a, a large region, and you're, you know, absolutely in a lot of different people's backyards, there's, uh, there's certainly a lot of coordination that needs to go on for that. And, I think I think FAOs would be a an essential part in, in making that happen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for listeners that aren't familiar, in December 2021, the Marine Corps published a concept for stand-in forces, which called for Marines to operate in a contest in contested environments in small but lethal low signature units as the leading leading edge of the maritime defense in depth. So, Lieutenant Colonel Dello just kind of discussed how FAOs can help facilitate that for deploying units. How do you see deploying units best utilizing FAOs? Um, you know, if you are, let's say, an infantry, an infantry battalion deploying and you're not familiar with this this concept of a FAO, how, how would that those two pieces kind of fit together? Well, I mean, the short answer is right now, they don't. The the way that the FAO program is set up and the way it's written in the DOD directives is strategic enablers. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so that coupled with just manpower requirements, it makes it very difficult for FAOs to be at the tactical level. Now, that's not saying they can't and they, they shouldn't, but it's they're kind of at the, the MAF MAR4 level and they can be used you know, as, as direct telescopes to assist with that, that, uh, that awareness. But ultimately, um, I think there there are different levels of international affairs uh, programs. So one of the ones would be the foreign area staff NCOs that we can push down to a more tactical level, and they would, you know, ideally they would still have some of those outright competencies to be able to navigate across many different cultures. Um, one of the things that we I think run afoul of sometimes is the idea that you know a, a FAO is just an LREC. Uh, SME that you can go in there and they're they're a translator, um, and while language capabilities are important, it's really their understanding of how the other it's their pull mill experience, their ability to work with partner nations, but also to work within the the, the joint uh, and interagency environment to get things done. Um, there used to be uh, the Marine Corps Security Cooperation Group that had. Mm -hmm. um, that they, 
still run the advisor course. There's a small cadre of them left. Um, and I think that, you know, some of the work that they did about teaching and enabling LREC understanding at the tactical level uh, is valuable, but it is difficult to have very specific, detailed cultural knowledge of a very wide area. Because mm -hmm. just, there's, there are thousands of different cultures, you know, spread across Indo-Pacom and, and, you know, Africa and, and Latin America as well. So I think, you know, what we need to focus on really is perspective taking and broad culture, cross-cultural competency uh, as opposed to, you know, the, the tempting idea that a FAO can be, you know, one shot, one kill for every different culture that's out there. It's, you know, you're, you're going to be a Eurasian FAO, you're going to be a, uh, an African FAO. You're going to understand some of the cultural differences, but you're not an anthropologist. I don't know if that answers your question. No, that was perfect. Do you ever see a Marine Corps where FAOs are down at the tactical level, where, you know, maybe a few years down the road we have a single-track program, we're making more FAOs, and now you have a FAO that can attach to a deploying unit or is just there to receive them to make sure they're integrated into that culture? And, you know, instead of spending months trying to get to know the key players on the ground, they can jump right in and start doing bilateral exercises. So I, I kind of just had this discussion. Um, I think if the FAO single track initiative does not go through, if for some reason the Marine Corps at the senior levels uh, makes a decision that, no, we want to go in a different direction, I think at that point we would need to look at what it is that we really want from our FAOs and, and FASs. And what I mean by that is what the DOD directive tells us to do is, is focus on strategic level, strategic level enablers. If that's not what we're really pursuing, and we do see you know much more value at a tactical level, then I think we would probably look at incorporating some more of that into the, what you just described into the Marine Corps, the training pipeline. Mm -hmm. um, because you know, the, one of the biggest things about our training pipeline is that it's so long, and it can really throw a wrench into people's careers. And if it's not going to be a primary MOS, then we certainly don't want to ruin people's careers. Uh, so it, providing more FAOs at the tactical level, I think, would be a fallback position from if the, if the FAO program does not go single track. Uh, they would move more towards, I, I think what I would recommend is while we still have to maintain the hard standards that the, the SECNAV and the DOD instructions say, I think a reasonable fallback position would be to try to bring people into the program that already have a master's degree, already have some language competency, and then we focus their training on advising and security cooperation type at the, at the more tactical level. So the world is becoming more and more globalized, I think, and the Marine Corps recognizes that with publishing documents like Concept for Stand-In Forces, Force Design 2030, we're integrating more with the Navy, it seems like, and also allies and partners. So aside from the administrative point, would there be any opposition to a single track program? I, right now, I don't see anything. Um, everything that we have, like you said, in you know, all of the strategic and service level documents point to the allies and partners, the importance of not leaving talent on the table, meaning you know creating multiple pathways to success uh, for Marines. 
and it, that doesn't always necessarily need to be a command track. There's uh, plenty of officers that uh, are not interested in commanding at the 05 and 06 level. They're interested in this line of work, being foreign area officers, working with international um, allies and partners. So I, I don't see in principle any pushback. Uh, I think we we are having to, to deal with some institutional um, bureaucracy that, that you know just takes time to navigate. Uh, and not to mention the fact that also with all of the force design stuff that's going on, bandwidth for change is, is pretty much at, at a max right now. They're trying to change, the Marine Corps is trying to make pretty massive changes. Uh, so when it comes time for us to you know want to have this conversation, the same folks that are helping us at, at CDI and MRA, uh, they're also doing the, the same folks that are doing the big force design changes where battalions are changing to you know MLRs and, and they're, they're dealing with change at a much larger level. So I, I also recognize that it's, it's certainly not um, you know, bureaucracy for the sake of bureaucracy. It's, there's, there's big fish to fry as well. Uh, that, you know, it's a competing interest, basically. Yeah, of course. This question may be a little too far in the future, but say the single track program is approved. Do you anticipate that changing the selection process? So would low density MOSs no longer be candidates for the FAO program to ensure the Marine Corps stays well-rounded? So that is, there are a couple different codes that are being kicked around right now for how it would be. I think the one that makes the most sense is at some time, point to be determined uh, yet, but sometime probably after um, selection to major, the officers would be given a chance to apply to transition. And of course, that's going to be at the, the you're going to have to have something in, in there that is from your primary MOS monitor from MMOA that says, yes, you're eligible to transfer. Um, and I don't think that it's going to be, um, you know, cut and dried conversation because there, there are folks that are frankly going to say, look, I want to go do this. If you don't let me go do this, I'm going to get out. So you're going to lose me you know, one way or the other. Um, and we do, yeah, there's, there's, there's a huge problem with low-density MOSs in the Marine Corps right now. Even at times, us getting paybacks from folks that are in low-density MOSs. Um, we invest three-plus years in education in them, and then we don't ever get to utilize them because they're, they're being told that they can't do a, do a fail payback toward. They have to stay in the primary MOS. So, I, yeah, it will be part of the conversation. Uh, but I think that that's something that can very easily be rounded out we're not talking about huge numbers, uh, so at least in the initial phasing plan. It would probably be uh, fairly small. Um, and I think that's something that we're, the numbers that we're talking about are so small that MNRA would easily be able to to, to make that you know, adjudication. Yeah. You're always, it's, you know, it is a zero-sum game in some you know, context, so you are going to lose, uh, you are going to have talent. That, that wants to come over to the FAO program, and that's just something that the, the service ultimately has to make the decision. Is is having this important enough to you know have some talent come over from other MOSs? Other MOSs are going to have to, to lose some of their talent. Mm -hmm. And I know the FAO program has been compared to 
flight school, for instance, if this shifts over to flight school in the sense that the time commitment and the cost associated with creating this type of officer, if this shifts over to the single track program, do you ever see a Marine Corps where Marines come in and this is their initial MOS? No, I, I don't think so. I, I the importance of understanding what the Marine Corps is and how we work and how we operate is, you know, it's a precursor to being a FAO. And also, I think there's a level of maturity that's required that I certainly didn't have when I was a second lieutenant. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think you have to be a good MAGCAP officer first. You have to understand, you have to have a couple deployments under your belt and see how the Marine Corps does what it does, how we're different from some of the other services why we're different and have an understanding of that so that you can bring that understanding out to the interagency and the joint community. Yeah, I completely agree. FAOs really are the best advocate for Marines in these foreign areas where we're deploying and have unfamiliar faces cycling throughout the country at all times. One of the things that we get all the time is we don't want our FAOs to go native. So we want them to still be, you know, very high quality officers. You don't want them to turn into, you know, a, a diplomatic mindset where they're they're not Marines anymore. And I think people that say that aren't familiar with actually where our structure is in the Marine Corps. Seventy percent of the billets that we have are in MARFORs and MAPS. It's not like they're, you know, we're all out working for embassies continuously. You go and you have touch points and you, you, you know, serve a tour as, as a SCO and you're probably going to come back and you're going to work at a map for a MAR4 uh, and then you're going to go back out and you're going to be an attache or you're going to, um, you know, be a SCO or an SDO DAT in, in some other country. But the idea that we're going to lose our marine nature, lose our greenness, I think is, uh, it just doesn't bear out when you look at the billets that we have. There's very few options for people to, to go from joint or interagency billet to joint interagency billet. You're going to come back to the Marine Corps and you're going to, you're going to serve as a Marine in the MAGTAP. Um, and that just kind of, you know, as you said, that Marines, FAOs in particular, need to have that continual you know, understanding of what it is that the Marine Corps does, what the MAGTAP does, and how you know, it, important it is for us to fight that way. So uh, that's not the intent. You know, single track is not going to change that. <clears throat> It's just going to provide, uh, really, what we're looking to do is create some space in billets right now that already exist and have them coded for FAOs so that a FAO can more reliably stay within their theater or aligned MEF. Yeah, I think you said something huge there that Marines aren't going to lose their greenness. You know, you always hear that America doesn't need a Marine Corps, they want one, and FAOs are the opportunity to have other countries want United States Marines working with their militaries. I, of course, don't want to leave out our regional area officers or our foreign uh, area staff NCOs. Lieutenant Colonel Deller, are there any new initiatives with those programs? I think, um, really, the, the FAS program, we're still coming up online. We do have um, a new billet that has been uh, purchased by the Marine Corps for a, a foreign area staff NCO program manager. We've always had it filled uh, in an overstaffed capacity, but now we actually have the structure for it. So I think that's an important step in professionalizing the program. Um, and then the, the, the foreign area staff NCO program manager is, is currently working on a couple different uh, initiatives 
to get more of our foreign area staff NCOs into OPSCO and OPS NCO billets at embassies. Uh, right now, there's a particular push for Africa uh, that uh, some of the AFRICOM uh, joint billets, I should say, I would say, are they're, they're having a hard time filling them. So we're trying to see if, if that's something that we can help out with in, in having more foreign area staff NCOs actually in embassies uh, working with their counterparts in the SCO office and their, their failed counterparts in the SCO and attache offices. The RAIL program, um, to be completely frank, um, <clears throat> the RAIL program is causing, uh, it, it's, it's difficult to maintain and it's difficult to manage. When the original program was stood up, I think the idea was to get people with some of the, the regional understanding and background without the full training pipeline of a foreign area officer. Um, unfortunately, with a lot of the things that have happened in the last couple of years, uh, creating a RAO has almost become more of a career liability uh, than a FAO has. Uh, we just, you know, in our interviews in the last couple of days, we've had Marines that are going to be between NPS and their FAO or have a radio payback tour, they're going, they're, they're going to spend their entire time as a major out of their primary MOS. Um, and I know that's something that talent management is, is trying to change. I'm just a little wary when that is actually going to be recognized on the board. And the last thing I want to do is see somebody punished for doing a program that the Marine Corps told them to do. So <clears throat> a long way of, of getting around to the fact that if the FAO single track initiative goes through, I think one of the things that we would do is bring over RAOs into the, the FAO program and stop training RAOs in the capacity that we are right now. Um, and there's 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 a lot of reasons for that, but uh, the primary one is it creates a more um, you know singular focus for us that you know foreign uh, foreign area officers are you know, the, the, the capstones for uh, pull mill and international engagement for the Marine Corps, and there's a there's a singular path to do that as opposed to trying to create these two different ones uh, that frankly don't, they, they kind of get the worst of both worlds, if that makes sense. They don't get the full training and scope of a foreign area officer, but they're suffering a lot of the same career setbacks because they're, they're not able to spend time in their primary MOS when they need to. Yeah, of course. So if you brought Reyes over to the FAO program, does that mean majors would have the opportunity to be selected for FAOs, or would they have to be selected in the four to seven year time frame that FAOs are currently selected? Yeah, that's the big discussion right now. Um, I think there's going to have to be some uh, just straight up transfer, folks that already have the MOS, whether they're FAOs or RAOs. Um, there's going to have to be some process for us to do that, and that would, I think, be at a major level. Uh, what it looks like from an accession's point of view, we're still working through that. So obviously we wouldn't select any more people to be RAOs, uh, but I think what we would, what, what we're discussing right now is probably when you would come over to be a FAO, instead of like where you are in your career, you'd be further to the right. So probably looking to start your FAO training, you know, as closely to as closely as, um, as we can to your selection to major. That would give us, you know, approximately six to seven years, so a good full two, two, you know, almost three tours out of you as a foreign area officer in a, in a foreign area officer billet before you can be eligible for retirement. 
So that's that's part of the, the back and forth that we're going on right now is the, we want to take uh, folks that have had a proven track record in the Marine Corps and are MAGTAP officers and understand how things work. But at the same time, we don't want to take folks that are too senior and don't have at least two or three you know tours in them. Um, so that's that's definitely part of the discussion right now. And I think there, it, the initial phasing would be, you know, folks at the major and even lieutenant colonel level could you know transfer over. It's the accessions part. How are you, how are we going to bring in you know the, the study track folks? That's that's still up for discussion, really. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm excited to see what happens with the program within the next year or two. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dello, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I think that that's it. Thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity, and uh, I, we need to get other FAOs on here. I think Colonel Perry, the senior Marine uh, here at uh, NPS, it would be a great candidate. So he, he said last night that he'd be interested in doing one. So I'm going to plug for it. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway, Lieutenant Colonel Dello, thank you so much for the conversation today. Like I said, I'm excited to see what happens with the FAO program and the Marine Corps. This is just another opportunity to show not only America, but the entire world why Marines are fantastic. So thank you again for the conversation, and I look forward to having maybe you or someone else on in the future. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast.